0: funny story, you know, so the new Apple software has Siri as a part of it. So I'm sitting in my office this morning and I'm, I'm going over my notes and every time I say the word Siri, Siri says, what can I help you with? <laughs> and I'm thinking, listen, unless you're going to preach this sermon, you can't help me with anything. So I had to go in and find out how to shut her down. So I've shut her down. So she happens to pop up in the middle of this. You'll understand why. So we've been doing a four-week series entitled Unshakable, And this series has centered around the testing of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And we've embarked on this series because it's a precursor to a series that we're going to be doing this fall, which we've entitled Living the Mission. And the purpose of this series is to remind us that if we're going to live out the mission of Jesus, we must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus. Very simple, but yet profound. And so our commitment to Jesus, our commitment to the mission of Jesus, we said is cemented through seasons of testing. Times when we stand against the distractions and we stay focused on the mission that God has called us to. As we've looked at this passage, we see that the enemy's purpose during this whole testing event is to get Jesus to depart from his mission so that the mission of God to restore lost humanity would fail. But we've seen that Jesus won't have any of that, he's unshakable. And so, I believe that as we've looked at this passage, it has revealed a lot about the character and the methods of Satan. And I believe that this passage gives us insight into how Satan will try and distract us from our mission, from the mission of Jesus, our focus on God's plan for our lives. And so, we've got to be aware of his tactics. We, we must be completely committed to the mission. Like Jesus, we too must be unshakable. And so in the first week, we laid the groundwork for the series. We looked at what took place leading up that informs this whole passage. We looked at the baptism to genealogy and the leading of the Spirit. In week number two, we focused on the theme of physical appetite. And we were reminded of the importance of trusting God to provide for us what we need. And we said that our trust is based on the depth of our relationship with God. The third week, which was last week, we considered the second test test, which centered on the theme of power, that the enemy will attempt to prey on our struggle with patience and timing and try to get us to take matters into our own hands, but we must trust God. Today, in the final message in the series, we're going to be focusing on the final theme uh, and specifically, we're going to be looking here uh, in terms of protection. Protection. And we said that real faith is not dictating to God what he should be doing to protect us. Real faith is trusting that God will do what he's promised. And so we're going to read Luke 4 and we're going to look at verses 9 to 13. So let's look at them together. It says, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Let's look at, first of all, the challenge. The third test of Jesus is presented to him by the devil in the form of a challenge. The devil, we're told, led Jesus to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the holy city of Judaism. To the top of the temple, which is the center of worship within Judaism. Now, once again, it's important for us to understand that it's best to to see this test in terms of a vision rather than actual physical movement. And he takes him to the top of the temple in this vision, to the highest extremity, the highest point. And now the highest point in the temple was approximately 50 meters or more than 150 feet. So it's a pretty significant height. A fall from that height would be fatal, no question. And so the devil once again focuses in on this theme that's been riding all through this passage, this theme of the Son of God. We saw it in the baptism. God himself spoke and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We saw the theme in the genealogy where Adam was called the Son of God, small s, and that Jesus, now the big S Son of God, was going to succeed where Adam had failed. And so he says to Jesus once again, since you are the son of God, since that's been established that you are the son of God, I dare you to jump from the highest pinnacle of the temple. I dare you to jump that 150 plus feet, that 50 meters to the ground. And as he throws up that challenge, something happens in Luke that this is the first time in the testing that it shows up, that this is the first time where the devil actually quotes scripture. Now up until this point, it's been Jesus who's been quoting the scripture, but in this test, the third test that Luke records, the devil quotes scripture. And he quotes Psalm 91. And this is what he quotes. He will command the angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so the devil is saying to Jesus, if God made this promise in Psalm 91 to his people, then certainly this must apply to God's son. This must apply to you as well. And so Jesus, you can jump this 150 plus feet or 50 meters and you won't even as much as stub your toe. God will protect you Just as he has promised in his word, he will do. Don't you trust God to protect you, Jesus? Don't you trust God to look out for you? Don't you trust God to keep you from harm? The challenge. Secondly, I want us to see the intention. Why would Satan want Jesus To jump from the top of the temple. What's his interest here? Why would he? What's his intention? Well, the temple was the gathering point for worship. It was a hive of activity. I mean, it was the rush hour of the city. Those who were longing for the Messiah to come. And in these days, that longing was very intense because the Roman politics was so suffocating that people just wanted the Messiah to appear and and lead them out of the bondage of Rome. And so those who were longing for the Messiah would, would come and gather there to pray at the temple on a very committed, ongoing basis to ask God to send their deliverer to them. On top of that, The rabbinic tradition taught the Jewish people that when the Messiah came, he would appear on the top of the temple. And so what the devil is doing here is he's playing to this teaching that has taken place within Judaism amongst the rabbis. And he's playing to the emotions and expectations of the people who are so desperate for their Messiah to come. And he's saying to Jesus, if you jump from the top of the temple where all these people who are looking for you are gathered, the Father will send his angels to protect you. You won't be harmed. But over and above that, the worshipers at the temple who are praying for your appearing, who are expecting you to appear on the top of the temple, they're going to witness this spectacular miracle. They're going to see you leap, and they're going to see the angels come and gather you up, and they're going to know, based on that, that you are the Messiah, and in an instant, you're going to win them over to you. And they'll see that you are the Messiah and they will follow you. He's attempting to get Jesus to perform a miracle to demonstrate that he is God, to demonstrate that he's the Messiah, so that he will win the people's affection. Now, this is an interesting challenge and proposal because Jesus has the opportunity here to gain the praise and the allegiance of the nation of Israel without needing to follow the painful path to the cross. They will follow him based on this act without the cross. Because once again, the devil is trying to get Jesus to needlessly thrust himself into danger so he can create a situation where he can manipulate God to act by causing him to be obliged to save his own son's life. Now, if you look closely at the challenge, what you're going to see is this. Under this particular scenario, God ceases to be the one that's in control and instead is being controlled by being compelled to act. The devil is trying to get Jesus to force God's hand to get an outcome rather than trust God by way of the cross to get the outcome. That's his intention. Thirdly, we see the refute. Now, it's important for us to see right off the top that Satan is taking Psalm 91 out of context. What he's done is he has used the words it is written. He has quoted scripture accurately, but he has twisted it for his advantage. I've seen that a couple times in my lifetime. If you look closely at Psalm 91... Psalm 91 addresses those who have, there's a condition. Those who have chosen to live under the shadow of the Most High. And so in that psalm, it says, those who have chosen to live under the shadow of the most high, they have placed, those who have placed their unwavering trust that God will care for them and protect them in the worst conceivable circumstances. That's the context, that if, though, if those of us who put ourselves in that position, then God will protect and care for and provide for those whose trust is in him. This psalm is not encouragement to deliberately test the Lord to see to what extent he will deliver them. It's not to say, well, I'm going to walk out in the street during traffic because God promised to protect me and so no cars can harm me. That's not what it means. This verse is about external dangers that we can't control. Things that are out of our control. It's not about creating dangers to force God to act and keep his promises. And so Jesus responded to Satan's challenge. He responded to Satan's misuse of scripture by quoting scripture back at him. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put God to the test. Do not put God to the test. Now, it's important that we understand the context of this passage. The Israelites were in the wilderness and God had just provided manna where there was no food. We talked about that previously. And now they've arrived at this place called Rephidim. And the expectation when they got there is that there's going to be a water supply. And so when they get there, there's a problem. There isn't a water supply. There's no water anywhere to be found. Now, as we read the Israelite story, we've seen that they are prone to grumbling and complaining on occasion, usually at the first hint of adversity. You see them grumbling and complaining. And so they've just experienced God's miraculous provision of manna when they were starving in the wilderness, and already they're complaining because there's no liquid to go along with it. And they quickly are forgetting about God's care and God's power and the fact that God's presence is right there in their midst. And they're overwhelmed instead by their circumstances. And so we're told they began to quarrel and demand water from God. Now, we use the word quarrel in the sense of, you know, if, if, if you know uh, Harold and I have a disagreement and we're, we're arguing about that, we're having a quarrel. That's not what the word means here. It's not two people disagreeing about something. The word quarrel here is actually a legal word. And it refers to presenting a case. You've prepared and have presented a case. And so they come to Moses with a question. Is God among us or not? Now, what they're saying is they're not looking for the answer to that question. Their question is rhetorical. Their question is making a statement. What they're saying to Moses is this. They're making a case. If God was really among us, if God was really here, then God would do what we want. If God was really here, God would answer Our demands. If God was really here, He would provide water for us. They're saying, You brought us here, God. You led us here. Now take care of us. We demand that You meet our needs. That's what they're saying. In fact, God, the evidence that You're really with us will be whether or not You meet our needs. And our demands. And in the midst of them presenting their case and making such statements, Moses looks at them. I can just see him pointing his big bony finger. I don't know. I think just Moses had a big bony finger, right? Anyone else believe that? It's not scriptural. I'm probably taking it out of context, it's just my imagination. And he said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, what does that mean? What does testing God mean? It means inappropriately demanding God to provide a divine sign to prove that he will do what he promised to do. That demanding a miraculous sign from God is never acceptable. That's what Moses is saying. How dare you demand a miracle from God? You're testing God. So Jesus grabbed this scripture and quoted it to refute the devil's argument and to communicate the truth in this moment to the devil. Listen, devil, real faith is not dictating to God what he should be doing to protect us. That's not real faith. Real faith is trusting that God will do what he's promised to do in his time. That's what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus would not do What the devil was asking from him because he was committed to the mission of the cross. It's really interesting because we we said last week that, or the week before, that Matthew also records the narrative of Jesus testing in the wilderness with details. And what I really love is how Matthew later in his passage connects the dots. And so we looked at that, I believe it was last week when we talked about Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And then he said the same thing to Peter later on, on the same theme. When they were try, both trying to get Jesus to take power without going to the cross. Well, we have another connection in this one. Because basically what the devil is saying is, listen, throw yourself down. If you're really the son of God, God will protect you. It will all be all right. And you will prove to everybody that you are who you say you are. Now, does that sound familiar? Well, yes, it does. Matthew 27, 40. We see this exact same theme arise again. Jesus is hanging on the cross. People are mocking Jesus. And what are they saying to him? If you are the son of God. Since you are the son of God. As you proclaim. Come down from the cross. Throw. Literally. Throw yourself down. And I love this. The chief priests. The religious people get in on it. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders of Israel, the most respected people, leaders in Israel. They looked at him on the cross and they said, You saved others. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And then they are quoting the devil when they say, If you are the Son of God, you won't be harmed. Just like Peter picked up the devil's words later with Jesus, the religious elite are now picking up the devil's words when Jesus is on the cross. Come down. Jump. The Greek language here expresses a command to the one who is hearing to perform a certain action by the authority of the one who's commanding it. We command you to do it. The crowds and the religious leaders are all challenging Jesus to do what the devil challenged them to do in the wilderness. They're challenging him to the exact same thing. Prove to us by forcing God to perform a miracle and we will believe in you. But the method will mean avoiding the cross. The only way you can prove to us is come down from the cross. The cross can't be a part of this. And Jesus would not do what the devil was asking from him and he wouldn't do what the crowds and the leaders were asking from him because he was committed to the mission of the cross. Well, it's a long weekend and I have two application points. Sebastian was shocked. He said, what? Not three. I said, sometimes God moves in mysterious ways, Sebastian. Sometimes there's three, but then sometimes there's two doesn't mean it's any shorter, so don't get excited. There's just two things. The first thing I want to talk about is faith. I can't emphasize strongly enough how important it is to understand the word of God in its proper context. Scripture must always be understood in terms of the context from which it was written. And, you know, it, we always have to do our best to make sure we understand it as God intended it to be understood. But you'll hear it all the time. I hear it in people's prayers. I hear it in their conversation. I hear it in their statements. Taking scriptures that are intended to mean something else and bringing it over to mean something else that they see it to be. Scripture must always be understood in terms of the context from which it was written. Now, one of the most prominent misunderstandings that we witness is in terms of what it means to have faith. That's the big one. That's a really big one. I have seen and heard many people misrepresent scripture to support a view of faith that is harmful. Because if indeed it is true, If it is true that if you have enough faith that God will act, if we interpret scripture to teach that, then you must conclude that if God is not acting, well, it must be because you lack the necessary faith, right? It makes sense. If scripture teaches that if you have enough faith, God will act, if God is not acting, then we obviously must be lacking faith. In essence, your lack of faith is creating a lack of answer. And so your lack of response from God is really your fault. Now that carries a lot of pressure. That carries a lot of shame. For the genuine, sincere person who sincerely seeks God to intervene, but there's no evidence that anything is happening. And especially since their request for God's help already comes at a time when life is very difficult for them. The reason they're looking to God is because life right now is is very painful. It's very difficult. And so in the middle of that, It's harder because all of a sudden, not only is my life difficult and I'm looking to God to help me, but the fact that nothing is happening further heightens my pain because I must be doing something wrong. Now, I might also point out that this type of thinking and teaching aligns with the devil's teaching. There, I said it. I better defend that now. That kind of teaching aligns with the devil's teaching in Luke 4. Because if we have the power through faith to force God to act on our behalf, then it's no different than the testing of Jesus that we have control over God. Who's supposed to have control over us? If my faith can force God to move, then who's in control? God? No, I am. My faith is. Well, that's the devil's teaching. I've seen people, sadly, reject medication. Reject treatment. In fact, I've met people who will not admit that they are even sick. Because they believed that to even say it or speak it would communicate a lack of faith and keep God from doing what they're asking God to do. And so I won't take the medication and I won't take the treatments and I won't even admit that I'm sick. In fact, I'll take Isaiah out of context and say, by your stripes I'm already healed. Because they don't want to communicate a lack of faith and hinder God From acting. I've had people leave the church because they knew that as a pastor, I personally supported people who struggle with mental health issues like depression and anxiety, who take medication for it. And they felt, in their opinion, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be filled with joy and you shouldn't have anxiety or depression and need medication. They felt they shouldn't, if you're a believer of Jesus, you shouldn't have mental health issues if you really had faith in God. Boy, does that stuff make me angry. But I'm good. I'm good. Breathe deep. Because if that kind of thinking, folks, were true, none of us would ever wear glasses. None of us would wear glasses. If that kind of thinking was true, I mean, you'd be driving around like Mr. Magoo. You'd be running over every garbage can and cat on the side of the road. Because you're denying that you need, you know, right? No, I can't get glasses. That's That's wrong. Or wear a hearing aid. Never wear a hearing aid. Never get dental work done. Never have surgery. Never get a pacemaker. Never take your blood pressure medication. Never control your diabetes. That's where that kind of thinking takes us. It's not wrong to cry out to God in our moments of desperation. In fact, I would say that God wants us to look to him in our moments of desperation. And to lean on him and to throw ourselves into him. But it becomes problematic when our attitude is like that of the Israelites with Moses and the devil with Jesus. And we demand that God prove himself to us by performing a miraculous act. The Bible calls that testing God and it's not appropriate because God is not a genie in the bottle that you, if you rub it, you get three wishes. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't perform for us on a whim. God doesn't exist to meet our demands. God wants a relationship with us. God wants us to trust Him with every part of our lives. God wants to lead us in our lives, even through the difficult times. And you've heard me say, the Lord is my shepherd as much in the valley of the shadow of death as He is by the cool waters. God is God if He moves the mountain, and God is God if He says, this is one you have to climb. We trust Him even if things go different than we want, even if things are different than we asked of Him. We still trust Him. And my point is this. According to the example of Jesus, again I say it, real faith is not dictating to God what He must do for us. Real faith is trusting God regardless of the circumstances. Folks, it is critically important that we understand the Word of God in its proper context. We have never lived in a time when more information has been available to us. We have more information than we know what to do with, and we've never been so ill-equipped to know what to do with it. That's the reality of our culture. And the same can be said within, quote-unquote, I'll use these words, christian culture that you can go on the internet and you can watch tv and you can buy videos and you can have all kinds of stuff pouring into your life and a lot of it is garbage garbage because it's teaching us things that are not true i've sat in a living room with family members obliged to watch what they're watching on quote christian tv And they're dumb enough to ask me what I think. And I'll say, I can't believe you're listening to this garbage. That's not even the word of God. I don't care how rich they are, how successful they are, how many planes they have, how many channels they're on. It's garbage. It's garbage. And we need to learn to discern what is good and what isn't. Because if we don't, we're going to get taken on paths that are going to take us way out of control. Second, patience. Aren't you glad there's only two? I don't think I have the energy for three. (laughs) Patience. Patience. If you're anything like me, you've asked the same questions. The same question as the Israelites asked in the wilderness. I won't pretend to stand up here and say, I've never asked the question, is God with me or not? (laughs) I've asked that question a lot of times. A lot of times. God, are you with me or not? And so if you're like me, you've asked that too. If God was really with us, he would have done what we were asking. If God was really with us, he would answer our request. If God was really with us, he'd provide what it is we're asking for. If God was really with me, I wouldn't be sick. If God was really with me, my kids wouldn't be struggling. If God was really with me, my marriage would survive. If God was really with me, I wouldn't have this much debt. God was really with me. I'd have a real job to provide for my family. Is God with me or not? And like the Israelites, our attitudes sometimes are. You're leading me, God. You brought me here, God. You know what needs to happen better than anybody, God. Now take care of me. We demand it. You owe me. I've been faithful. I think that came up a few times in the Old Testament. I'm the only one left, Elijah said. I've been faithful. I'm the only one. In fact, the evidence that God is really with us will be whether or not God meets our demands. That's what we're looking for. Yeah, if God does what I need, I'll know he's with me. Folks, we can't overemphasize the overwhelming evidence in scripture that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises, but he keeps them in his way and he keeps them in his time the problem is his way and his time often does not align with my way and my time we got god to act and we want him to act now right god give me patience and give me patience now it's important for us to understand that God's ways are not our ways. It's important for us to understand that delay with God is actually strategic. He's doing it on purpose. Thanks. That times of testing are a part of God's process. Of shaping me and shaping you into the image of Jesus. So I believe we must learn to be patient. And trust God to act in his way. In his time. Now this is what I've noticed in my life. It's kind of like Rascal Flatts. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> do you ever look back and think, I can't believe I ever prayed that. and I'm so glad God didn't do it. Right? Experience teaches us in hindsight that God's ways and timing were actually better than our ideas. We got to be patient. Abraham and Sarah were visited by God. He's 75 years old. And God said, I want you to leave everything you know and everyone you know, and set out. I'm going to build a people through you. You're 75. You don't even have kids, but there's gonna, it's going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a child. And He's 75 years old, and Abraham and Sarah set out, trusting the promises of God, and it's 25 years later. That the promise was realized. And Isaac was born. There were times in those 25 years that they got impatient. There were times that they took matters in their own hands and got in all kinds of trouble. And God had to intervene to get them out for his promise to be true. But the lesson in looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah is that God keeps his promises. But we must wait. Joseph. 17 years old, has a dream. One day he's going to be in a position of leadership and even his brothers are going to bow down and is dumb enough to tell them. But it's approximately 13 years later when the dream was realized. In the meantime, he's been in slavery. He's been imprisoned. He's gone through a season of false accusation and intense loneliness. But what's the lesson? God keeps his promises. We must wait. Moses, 40 years tending sheep in the wilderness and another 40 leading a disgruntled group of people through the wilderness en route to God's promise. And eventually they arrived. Listen. God keeps his promises. We must wait. Finally, David. He's a teenager when Samuel shows up at his house. Goes through the line of the obvious choices, but none of them are obvious to God. This young little one is out on the, teenager is out in the fields looking after his father's sheep. And when he walks in, Samuel knows he's the one. He's the, and he anoints him says, I'm anointing you, David. You're going to be the future king of Israel. Well, it's almost 15 years later before he finally becomes king. In the meantime, he kills a giant, spends significant time running from Saul, endured hardship and losses. What's the lesson? God keeps his promises. We must wait. Folks, I could go on and on. But I think you get the point. Real faith is not dictating to God what he must do for us. Real faith is trusting God regardless of the circumstances. Believing that he will do what he promised to do in his way and in his time. And we must be patient. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would make their way back. There is an enemy And let's not miss this. There is an enemy whose desire is to destroy and deceive and distract us from God's mission. And we can overcome the enemy through the authority of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Folks, the enemy will attempt to get us to distort the Word of God. To put God to the test by trying to get him to do what we want in the way we want it done. But we must learn to understand God's word and learn that real faith is not dictating to God what he must do. The enemy will attempt to prey on our struggle with patience and timing. And try to get us to act inappropriately or worse even give up. But we must trust God and be patient. Because if we're going to live out the mission of Jesus, we must be completely, wholeheartedly sold out to the mission of Jesus. Unshakable. Unshakable. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. The worship team is going to lead us. We're not going to do a prayer time because I've already done that earlier in the service, but what I want you to do we are going to do a prayer time. We're just going to do it here. And as the worship team leads us, this is a moment where the Holy Spirit can allow us to reflect on what we've heard and seen in God's word today and how that might apply to me. What's it say? What are you saying to me, God? How does this relate to me? How can I honor you? How can I honor you? How can I stay true to the mission when the enemy tries to distract me with this way of thinking and acting. Let's surrender that to him. Let's just make this place this morning a place where the spirit of God can speak to our hearts and show us and convict us and change us so that when we walk out these doors, we're better equipped to serve him than when we walked in.